All right, well, good morning, Salem. Uh, glad you guys are here. You braved the snow. Uh, for those of you guys who are at home and joining us online, uh, we're glad you guys are with us as well. I hope you guys are doing uh, a little bit, at least better than, than I am. I don't know if you can tell. I've got like this, this frog in, in my throat and got about a week ago and it's just this fighting through and it's persistent. And so uh, we're going to be talking about spiritual warfare uh, this morning. And I think that's honestly, honestly just a piece of it, right? So this is part of how uh, Satan sometimes uh, sometimes works. So uh, if you've got a Bible, I want to invite you guys and, and uh, just open up to Ephesians chapter 6. We are wrapping up, really close to wrapping up, uh, this, this series in Ephesians called Rooted and Grounded in Love. And uh, we've got today, and then next week we do uh, start our Christmas series. And then uh, on December 26th, we'll actually just wrap up with the final two, three verses here from Ephesians uh, in our online uh, service. And that will be the end, and we'll move into the next year. So uh, thanks uh, for joining us in this series. It's been really good and powerful and challenging and encouraging, I hope, in, in lots of ways. So if you remember uh, many, many weeks ago, probably six weeks ago or so, we were in the middle of this book and looking at the prayer. Uh, and it uh, really is the centerpiece of the, of the text of the whole letter itself. And we decided to postpone and push back uh, a week so that way we could do a prayer experience. And so the only way for us to really finish um, uh, on time with December 26th is to talk about two kind of different passages this morning that, that I hoped would be separate. So uh, we're going to talk about work. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, warfare. So uh, first things first, work. How many of you guys uh, love your job? Great. I'm not going to ask the opposite because I don't want to know. I think that would just be, that would just be mean, right? Um, so it's honestly, there's a lot. A lot of people re re replied very positively in the first service, and I thought, man, that's way more than I anticipated. Uh, as I was doing some research uh, this week, uh, I read this. This is a study done in uh, 2019, I think. that said that there's this poll that was conducted by Gallup, and they revealed um, that there's a, a, a certain percentage of the one billion workers who are in full time, full-time work, there's a certain percentage of those full-time people uh, that uh, are engaged in their work. You want to take a guess as to how, how much that is? 15%. 15% of, of the world's one billion workers uh, are, in, are really engaged in their work, which means that, you know, you do your math, right? Like, that's 85%. It's a whopping number. 85% uh, of people who are dissatisfied with, with, like, with work. And let's be honest, like, so much of life is, is work, right? There's a ton. Like, you go, you're at work for eight hours, sometimes more, maybe less, but that's a lot of your day that's spent. And if you are disengaged and, and unhappy with your work, that's a... That's a that's a challenging thing. Uh, maybe it's um, uh, some of the things that they listed, you know, maybe it's your, your boss, right? Like you, you think about work and you're like, the first thing comes to your mind, like, oh, I don't want to deal with that person. Maybe it's a colleague, right? Like there's that person down the hall or in the next cubicle who plays Christmas music in April, you know, like whoever that is, like, I don't know. It's just the people, like people do things that we don't like. Uh, and so we just don't like work. And maybe it's just, just it's our colleagues. Maybe it's the, the type of work that you do. Uh, maybe it's unsatisfying. I went in high school. I once was a, I worked at a, at a dog kennel because I love dogs and I'll petting them and, and hugging them and being close and I'm really a dog person. But then, you know, you, you look into the kennel and you have to do the rest, you know, the rest of the work, you know, that you just don't like. And it's maybe it's unsatisfying to you. You just don't like your work. Um, maybe it's your commute. 
you know, I once met a guy in Chicago who, um, who worked in Chicago, lived in Wisconsin, and had to commute two and a half hours one way. So five hours of every day was in commute. And I was like, man, you must love your job. He's like, no, but it pays me well. You know, like, it's meh, meh, no, not really. You know, but five hours. And we think 15 minutes is hard. Try five hours. It's so hard, right? Because maybe it's the commute. Um, maybe, um, maybe it's something like uh, just stagnant growth in your business. Maybe there's some, just some personal things that you don't like or something else is there. And, and maybe it's just like, gosh, I don't like the candy bars uh, that they put in the vending machine. And you're like, okay, really, dude? Like, that's, this is not about your workplace. This is probably about you, <laughs> you know? Maybe there's something going on inside of your heart that makes work dissatisfying because you just, you can complain about anything, right? Right? And it's this reality, right? Um, and so here's my question, right? What if, what if work uh, was more than just work? Like, can you think about work? Oh, it works for work. It was, meh, it was fine, you know? Like, what if it was more than that? And if you go, if you flip back a couple of pages into Ephesians chapter 2, you'll find, uh, you might remember this, this end of a very powerful uh, identity section where Paul just was rad- showing this radical transformation about who we were and who we can be in Christ. And at the end of that, he finishes with this line. He says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I mean, it sounds pretty plain and simple that work is, is, is a good thing. It's a part of the natural design in order. You go back to the garden, right? Where do we find Adam and Eve? What do they do? They are called to work the ground. So even before the fall. So once sin enters into the world, like work gets way harder and more challenging and more difficult, but there was still work. And I think a really strong argument would be made that there will actually be work in heaven, which everyone would probably sigh, you know? I thought this was going to be an eternal vacation. No, like, I, don't, I don't think that's true. Like, we are designed for good works. There will be, I think there will be some form of work in heaven, and whatever that looks like, I don't exactly know, but I think that there are passages that point to that, right? The, the work is, is part of the creation design. It's part of the humanity that we, that we do experience and will experience. And so my question then is, what if work was just more than work? Because if you follow the, the argument of Ephesians, right, you start in the very beginning, you talk about God and all that he's doing, and all of a sudden he enters in and he shows you this gospel story. Like this is what God is willing and capable of doing inside of your heart. And as you are transformed, guess what? He can transform the community. But then it's not only that, he says like he can transform the way that you live life, like how you engage in everyday life, how you walk, how you talk, how you eat, how you breathe, like all, everything in your life can be touched by the gospel, including your marriage can be radically transformed by the gospel in this mutual submission to Christ. Uh, how you do parenting can be transformed by the gospel. And here's my question, what if your workplace What if how you thought about work could be transformed by the gospel? And here's the reality, is that 98% of people are in the normal everyday workforce, right? That's the reality. Like you guys are in, you guys are in the workforce and it looks different than the work that that I'm engaged in. My job is to prepare you and prep you for this. As you look at this, let's let's see what Paul has to say about work in chapter six, verse five, okay? It It starts a little dicey here, so hang with me, okay? He says, bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear 
and trembling. Okay, uh, let's just stop and pause here for a second because we're, we're talking about work. Uh, there is this general category of work that Paul is, is addressing applicationally, but in this specific context, we need to know that, that we're actually talking about some, some things that are rather uncomfortable, and it's actually the idea of slavery. Right? There's this bondservant nature, this master and worker relationship that's going on in Scripture, and that makes us uncomfortable. It really, and it should make us uncomfortable, honestly, because the gospel is, is counterintuitive to slavery, right? And we'll talk about that in a second. But the reality is, as we look at this, we go, this makes us uncomfortable. And here's what I need you to know from the very beginning, is that Paul, in his context, as they are writing and talking about slavery, it was very different than what we uh, have in our history in, in the Americas. Uh, in, in Paul's setting, it was not race-based. It was not, had, had nothing to do with the color of your skin. And in fact, many of the people who would have been slaves would have looked just like you. Um, and so it's a very different type of, a, of a setting. And you could enter in to slavery under a variety of reasons. One, you could be born into it, right? That's just normal, right? You could be born into it. Uh, you could be sold into it if your parents needed money. They could sell you into slavery. Uh, you could have been abandoned, and so you got scooped up basically as a kid and, and brought into the household. Um, you, um, you could have volunteered, honestly. You could have said, you know, I don't want to do this voluntarily because it actually will improve my way of life. I'll get food and all these types of things. Uh, and you, you could also be incorporated via prisoner of war, you know, like in how, in, you know, how war works, and there's these people they capture and they could be brought into into uh, slavery. Um, but because it's very different uh, societal structure than what we experience here in the Americas, it doesn't mean that it wasn't challenging. For some masters, it really depended upon the owner of the household. Some owners treated their slaves with super respect, and it was very life-giving. And others treated them like property. And so there's a both-and type of a thing in this setting. Uh, and I want to be really clear, right, that there, there are um, a number of churches throughout history who have said, or they have quote, they'll look to Scripture and they'll quote Scripture and say, look, slavery is in the Bible. It's okay. And we have to say this. We go, no, it's not. The, the gospel is radically opposed to slavery of any kind, whether it's based on the color of the skin or it's just part of the, the normal society and the way somebody could be born into it or that they could be opted into it or volunteered into it, right? Whatever type of slavery, the gospel is radically, radically opposed. But it, it begs this question, why? Why doesn't, if that's true, why doesn't Paul or any other author in the New Testament then directly talk about the abolition of slavery, right? It's, it's a very important question. Why doesn't he? Why doesn't he do that? There's a, there's a ton of reasons why, um, why um, the gospel is radically opposed, and there's a ton of reasons why uh, he probably doesn't talk about it. But the one I want to give you this morning, just kind of as a general thing, is that the gospel or the Christian faith was never intended, from, from an author's standpoint and from God's perspective, was never intended to transform societies first, with then the result being that that society transforms individuals. That's not the way that the gospel works. The gospel doesn't start with systems and procedures and politics. It starts with people. And so what the gospel is designed is that it transforms people from the inside out. And this is how it works, right? It engages my heart, then I'm made new, I'm a new creation, and now as a new creation, I overflow in this world, and I am now an active agent of change in the systems and the society that we live in where we fight against we fight against things like slavery, right? 
And that's, that's super significant, right? And you could argue, I mean, like, you look at this, even just the letter itself of Ephesians, you trace back, it's about the, Genti- or the Jews, right, who are one ethnicity, and the Gentiles, who are all sorts of ethnicities and all sorts of colored skin, right? And what God says is that he brings them all together into one. So the book itself is an argument against it. But even more than that, Paul is going to speak very directly, uh, and I think in a way that's going to push forward, and he's going, to, he's going to advocate, even though it doesn't really sound like it, he's advocating for this long-term perspective, this, ab- this abolition of slavery in all of its forms. Okay, so here's what he says in verse 5. He says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, right? And this fear of trembling is connected to Old Testament language, right? Because as if we're talking to God here, right? With a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service or people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. And so as you, as you look at this, you can, okay, so what Paul is talking about here seems a little one-sided so far, doesn't it? What he's saying is that there's, this, there's, there's Jesus, right? There's the, there's the master, but he's saying that the, the, this, this servant, this, this person who's under the owner, should treat the, the owner with all this dignity as if he's serving the Lord. It still feels very vertical in its nature. But then Paul says something in six words, and he's going to radically flip this upside down. Because he says, think about everything that you're asking this servant to do, this, this bond servant to do. The way that he is called to treat his master, what does he then say in verse 9? He says, masters, do the same to them. Right? He doesn't even need to go any further. Right? Like, this is like, this is like, the, like the total reversal here, where he drops the hammer. And he says, like, listen, this is, that, this is the way it's supposed to be. All this mutual respect and dignity and honor that they owe to you, guess what? It's the same thing as in the marriage. There's this mutual submission that you, as the master, are to do the exact same thing for your workers. And it would have radically spoken out against the society of Paul's time. And he's really, he's pushing, advocating for, in some sense, even though it doesn't sound like he's advocating for the abolition of slavery. So as you look at, so you think about this, like you have Jesus, so there's this one, right? And then you have the owner, and then maybe you have the bondservant. This is the vertical view, right? This is the vertical view. I mean, you think about, okay, so Jesus is supreme. He has all authority. He's in heaven, right? And then you have the owner, right? And then you have the bondservant. And, and even in Paul, later on, just in his next verses, Paul says, when this person right here begins to threaten this person, he says, stop your threatening, because the moment that you do that is the moment that you actually engage in this vertical, this vertical relationship where you're actually engaging in the idea of ownership, You belong to me, and you must do everything that I say that you must do, right? And this, as we look at this, we go, this fails to capture what Paul's saying. It fails to capture the gospel, right? And so what Paul is doing is he's offering an alternative, right? Based on like, you know, remember Galatians 3, 28, where where Paul says later to the Galatians, he said, there's neither uh, Jew nor Gentile, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, because you are all one in Christ, right? It's an identity thing. And so what, what Paul is doing as he's offering this is that there's this, you have the bondservant, you have Jesus, the bondservant, and you have the owner, 
right? But both of these people, Jesus is in heaven, right? He's still supreme, but both of these people have the exact same identity in Jesus. Both have the same backstory. They were sinners, they were, right? They were far, far from the Lord, no hope, and then Jesus enters in, he transforms them. So there's the same identity. And so, gosh, there's this question that Paul is begging, he's inviting, he's saying, instead of the world looking like this, what if the workplace looked like this? Which totally would have radically changed and challenged how owners treated their slaves. Right? This is, this, is, this is crazy. Right? What he's inviting them to do, he's inviting them into this, this horizontal relationship saying, what if you guys, each of you, treated each other out of, out of relationship, the same identity to Jesus? What if you treated each other out of that same identity? There's this mutual encouragement. There's this mutual honor, mutual respect, whether you are a servant or you are an owner. Like, what if that was the case? Think about how that would radically transform the workplace. Right? And not only that, I think what Paul is also doing is he's adding this other little arrow at the end. I didn't leave myself much room. But what he's inviting people to do is he's inviting the owner and, and the bondservant together to create uh, and to renew a workplace where you and I are actually working together to transform the workplace into a gospel-centered workplace that becomes a force for the kingdom wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Guys, these people, these aren't, these aren't pastors. This isn't Paul, right? He's inviting this to happen. It's this mutual respect and dignity and honor, right? But and it translates, I think, into our, into our setting, right? And it doesn't translate in the same way um, because in their context it was different. But we do. We have workforce, right? We, have this, we still have order in our employer and our employees. But what if our employers and our employees worked together to create a workforce uh, and a workspace that was, that was originally like just, just saturated with the gospel? And we thought this is an incredible, incredible thing that Paul is actually talking about, right? And, and so someday, so I think that we should do a series at some point, just on the idea of faith in the workplace. Because one Sunday for a few minutes is not enough to engage this fully. Because here at Salem, we talk about Cave Table Road, right? Cave is where you, you have time with God, table time with others. In the road, this is, this is where you live, and this is where you work, and this is where you play. And your work is a piece of that. And what we want to do is we want to encourage, continue to encourage our people and our pews to think about our workplace, that you are actually the pastor for the people in your sphere of influence. Because imagine this, if we have a, say we're a church of 500, and if every single person has around 100 people that they are actively engaged in, which is, by the way, is, is probably the number, around 100 people, you take 500 times 100 and you get 50,000 people. And so all of a sudden you see that what we're trying to encourage is that outside the walls of this church, there are 50,000 people who are under the influence of the gospel because of transforming our, our workplace into gospel workplace, which is so incredibly cool, right? Um, and so not only does the gospel transform how we have marriage, how we do marriage, how we parent, but it can transform the way that we do work. And we serve as people who are serving Christ 
not necessarily the man. And we're promoting the gospel in all of our actions and our words. It's this incredible vision for, for the gospel. And you're like, Seth, I hate my job. I'm going to quit in a week. Great. Okay, that's fine. Jobs change. Right? These things, these things happen. Right? But whether your job is a week, it's a month, it's a year, or it's 10 years, can I challenge you and encourage you to think about stepping in and embracing where you are right now? And how can I use it with the time that I have for the sake of the gospel, right? It's this incredibly cool thing. And here's the the reality. As we switch into, as we transfer into the idea of spiritual warfare, here's the truth. Guys, the enemy, Satan, the, the schemer, the devil, the adversary, he would love, love for you to leave your workplace untouched. He, he doesn't want that to happen. He doesn't want you to bring the gospel into your workplace. He doesn't want you to think about yourself as a pastor to those people, right? Because that means bad things for his kingdom, right? This is the reality. And so we're going to switch over to, to the idea of spiritual warfare, right, in this next passage. And this is, I think this is really important for us to think about because this is not, this is not something that we think about often. I mean, in, in full honesty, how many of you guys woke up this morning and think about spiritual warfare? Yeah, first service, I think it was maybe six, five, and, and I see maybe one or two, right? This is reality. We just, we don't think about it. We don't come, and we don't enter into the day thinking about how the fact that, that my day is going to be under attack from Satan. And the reality is, is that this is what Paul is actually going to detail out for us. And when we think about spiritual warfare, right, it, it honestly raises tons of questions, like what in the world is spiritual warfare? Um, what role does it play in my life? Who is Satan anyways? Where did he come from? Like, did God create Satan? There's all these questions that come around that we can't answer all those questions uh, today, right? Um, but there's these really, these really important questions. And as I was reading this week from one of my favorite authors, one of the things that he said uh, was that whenever he's about to present or he's writing on the topic of spiritual warfare, he says, inevitably, something in my life always goes wrong. He goes, he goes one day, uh, the, the computer, like, totally jammed and I lost like X amount of time of writing. Uh, one day he goes, I was writing and somebody like hit a nail through my electrical outlet from outside and it shut everything down. You know, like all these things, these spiritual warfares. Uh, this last week I got sick. There's no way. I was thinking about, gosh, like it's going to be, it's going to continue and it's going to persevere until this Sunday. And yet here I am and I'm like foggy, you know, and Satan does not want us to talk about these things because Satan loves hiding in the shadows. That's where he does his best scheming. Right? And we've said this before, and I'll say it probably a hundred more times in the next however long. Right? And it's just that line, that the greatest lie that the devil ever told was convincing the world that he didn't exist. Because right? he wants to operate from the shadows. He, doesn't, he wants you to wake up and not think about him. That's exactly what he wants. Right? Because then he can operate from the shadows. And so here's the deal. I don't want to oversell this because I, what I don't want is for people to leave uh, church this morning and then, like, and then to start looking for Satan like under every rock and behind every bush. Because that, that, that will lead to a life of paranoia, okay? That's, that's not a good place to be. Like, you'll be consumed if you're constantly looking for Satan like this. But I don't want to undersell it either. Because if you leave the doors of this church and you go, meh, it's not a big deal, you're in a tough spot. And what we need is to find is that somewhere in the middle, we need to remind ourselves in a healthy way, right, in a very healthy way, that your life on a daily basis is under attack. 
and that the kingdom, every day there is a battle being waged for the kingdom, and at the center of it is the gospel. Whether or not the gospel actually encourages growth for Christians, or in whether or not it actually goes into the world for people who have never heard him before. There's a battle that's being waged every single day. And so what Paul is going to do here is he's going to make two major shifts as he moves us into this text. The first one, which makes sense, is that he's going to pull up to 30,000 feet and he's going to move away from the, this normal stuff like marriage and parenting and, and work and he's going to take this 30,000 foot perspective and he's going to help us see the greater cosmic battle that's actually being waged, right? And he's going to do this. And it's actually, um, it's unique because it actually mimics or mirrors chapter one because the whole book starts in chapter one with who God is, his power, his love, his sovereignty, his omniscience, his plans, his creations, all these things that he's doing, right? All his power. And then you have at the end, you have, but here's Satan. There's the adversary who also has power. He also has, it's nothing near God's. It's nothing near Jesus' power, but guess what? Satan does have power. And so Paul wants to help us understand this. And the second switch that he's actually going to do, the shift that he's going to do, is he's actually going to shift from the idea of walking to standing. So if you remember, in the second half of the book, starting in 4.1, it says that, you know, Paul is saying that we should walk in a manner according, you know, to the gospel. So as we walk, is how we do life, and every single thing, and so every single element of our life falls under this idea of walking. But he gets to with all of that, and he gets done, he's going he's to have a stop and plant firm. And we're going to cease walking and we're going to stand in the gospel. And that's how he's going to, to shift this morning. And so here we are in verse 10. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. I love the word finally here because um, he's pointing, he's wrapping up the, this whole letter, right? He's moving to the end of this letter. Uh, and he says, finally, I love that Eugene Peterson in his translation of the Bible called The Message, he goes, well, that about sums it up, right? Like you get to the end of a book, well, that's about it. Oh, but wait, right? Because you look back and you go, all of this stuff about who God is and what he's doing in the world and, and what he, how he wants to engage in your life, all this stuff, that about sums it up, basically. But don't forget, there's one final thing I need you to know and is that there's going to be a battle. There's a spiritual warfare that's happening. And what I want you to do is I want you to be strong. Be strong in the Lord and in his might, in his might, not your own strength, and in God's strength. And what he's doing is he's setting up this imagery of the Old Testament um, in, in a battle form, right? He's talking about Old Testament. So if you remember the story of Moses, uh, when Moses, they're like down in Egypt, you have Joseph and all these people multiply, and Moses is supposed to lead the people out of Egypt, and they get to, to the wilderness, and they go to the promised land, and then just because of some things that happen, they have to go back into the wilderness. And so it comes time to lead the people into the promised land. And God appoints this man named Joshua. Right? And Joshua is about to lead a million plus people across the Jordan into this land that's filled with these massive big people that, have, that are people of war. And there's tons of fear around this. And what does God say? He says, be strong. Be courageous. Do not be afraid. Why? Because I'm with you wherever I go. And so there's this battle, this imagery. And for, for many of us in this room, most of us in this room have never experienced battle. I know some have, but most of us haven't, right? Most of us haven't 
we just don't know what that's like. And I guarantee you, if there was a war today and we were to somehow be a part of it, and if they said, here's what you're going to need. You're going to need this, you're going to need this, you're going to need this. I'd be, I'd be like, I need three of those, I need three of those, I need three of those. You know, I need, I need everything you can give me plus more. Because it would be terrifying going into battle. And this is the image that, that Paul is setting up, and he wants to give us confidence as we enter into this battle, right? So he wants us to feel this confidence, right? And so he says, what does it look like to feel strong? What is it? And well, I think that the, underneath this idea of being strong is that he is actually reinforcing the idea of your identity. Remember, this is the story of Ephesians. He says, this is who you were, this is who you are now in Jesus, and this is who you will be, right? That in and of itself is, is huge, it's tremendous, and it has tons of power and has tons of strength. But imagine just taking your identity into a battle basically naked. You have no armor, right? It's gonna be hard, it's gonna be challenging avoiding all those flaming arrows if you don't have armor. And so what Paul says is that to be strong is actually then to take the armor that God has given you and to place it over your identity, to place it over who God has already made you to be, right? To place it on. So what does he say? He says, verse 11, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. All right, you see the purpose in this? It's to stand firm. Right? It's that idea of stopping walking is to stand firm, to withstand change, to withstand corruption or decay. It's to stand strong against the schemes of the devil. I love that word schemes because it's very revealing about the person that we're in war with, right? Because God, who has all power, all knowledge, can be everywhere at once, that's not who Satan is. He does not have all power. He can not be uh, everywhere at once. He doesn't have all the information, but he does have schemes, and we would be wrong to underestimate how powerful and manipulative and deceptive his schemes really are. How many of you guys like uh, chess? Anybody? Anybody? A few of you, great. Actually, that's probably more in the first service. Um, we, can, we can play uh, sometime, and I will humbly and graciously lose to you. Doesn't matter who it is in this room, I will lose. You put a three-year-old in front of me, I'll probably lose. Um, and, and because this is hard, right? Like, I know how it works, but I was, as I was doing some study on it this week, I was reading up about this guy named Magnus uh, Carlsen. Have you ever heard of this guy? He's a grand chess master, and he thinks, uh, well, not he thinks, he does, he knows, is that when he's playing, he can see or calculate about 15 moves in advance. 15. And I'm like, horse to B5. I'm like, I'm, play, I'm like playing Battleship instead, you know? Like, I'm just like, I don't even get it, you know? Like, boop, 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 And you look at Magnus Carlsen, you're like, man, that was a powerful move. And he goes, and that's 1 15th of a move. Because I'm thinking forward, and I'm thinking ahead. And if you think that's true of him, how true is that of Satan? Who's more powerful, and more witty, and more deceitful, and scheming, and then a guy like Magnus Carlsen, right? I, I love that um, uh, Peter's description of the devil here in 1 Peter 5, he says this, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, right? You guys, if you think about a lion, like lions are powerful, they're a scary creature. There's probably not many people except maybe Dwayne the Rock Johnson who's not scared of lions, I don't know, right? But this idea, like I think of a lion, I go, man, I'm, that's scary, that's scary. 
Uh, there was once, um, I love what, by the way, uh, what he says here is he says, one of the first things you should know is that the devil is not your friend, he's actually your adversary. Because just to be clear, so often Satan will, will pretend to be your friend. I mean, that's what happened in the garden, right? Like he shows up to Adam and Eve, what does he do? Does he pretend to be the enemy? Is he the enemy? No, he's the friend. I have something better, I have something good for you. Like take it, consume it, eat it, it's great, it's awesome. You're gonna be like God, you're gonna know the difference between good and evil. Guess what, that's true, you did. Oh, but tanked it, right? This is the story, right? He says he's not your friend, he's your adversary. He's, he's radically opposed to the gospel and he will pretend to be your friend and he will do everything that you want him to do short of the point of like transforming you into likeness because what he wants to do is he wants to bring death. He wants to devour you. He wants to eat you and to consume you like a python, like inch by inch just swallowing its prey, right? Many years ago, this movie came out called uh, A Ghost in the Darkness, I don't know if you've seen it. It's, a, it's based on a true story about two lions in Africa. And it's the time when the British were trying to lay a railroad line through Africa. And uh, there's these two lions that cause havoc amongst the workforce, amongst all the people, amongst all the workers. Normally, lions just eat for food, right? Like they'll attack and they'll do this. Uh, it turns out that there's these two lions who are now, by the way, stuffed and on display, I think in the Chicago Museum, uh, that uh, went on this, this rampage and they killed for sport and they shut down the whole railroad until they had to kill them because they were so just intent on just eating people. It's terrifying when you watch it, right? But there's this one scene that I remember, and, uh, and it shows this lion, right? And it's, it's from just from the lion's perspective, and he's crouched in, in the tall grass, the tall African safari grass, right? And he's slowly just pawing his way, and there's this gut, low guttural growl, like this like low roar that's coming out of him. And he's watching this woman who's walking along the edge of the camp, and it's as if you get this picture because you're, you know that these lions are out just to kill. And so it's as if you treat them like a human. What you're thinking and the way you're perceiving is this lion is like calculating. He, he's, he's devising his plan. He's scheming. When am I going to attack? How am I going to attack? It's not right now. It's not in daylight, but it might be then. Tomorrow, tomorrow night, and next week. He's calculating when he's going to do it. And it's, like, and it's like creepy, right? And then it switches and it shows the perspective from the woman because she goes like, oh gosh, maybe I heard something. And she looks out and all she sees is the waving grass. Oh, I miss, I guess I didn't hear anything. Okay, cool. And then she goes about her work, right? And this is the way Satan works. He's, he's prowling, he's waiting, he's scheming, he's devising ways to get you, to eat you, right? Like, ah, it's not true. Well, I think it is, right? I think it is true, right? Um, and it's not just the devil that we have to worry about, guys, because we know that the devil can't be everywhere, right? He's not omnipresent like God. So guess what? Look at verse 12. Look at who, God, look who Satan has working for him. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers uh, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, and so what Paul is doing is he's showing us how grand this battle actually is. He's like, you think it's just Satan? It's everything that Satan has under him. All of his forces are aligned against you. And he, I love that he says that our, our, our battle, right, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Right? What he's reminding us, he's like, guys, Seth, it's so easy to make people the problem. When you have disagreement with people in the world, and you're like, man, like, oh, they're, they're, they're the worst. My boss, my colleagues, they're the worst. Right? He's like, man, your battle isn't with people. 
Your battle is with the spiritual forces that are tying them to their sin. That's who your battle is with. It's super powerful. And he's setting up the massive nature of this battle because the larger this battle gets, it's like watching the Lord of the Rings. It's like the orcs like multiply in number. You're like, oh my goodness, I'm going to need all the armor I can get. Right? Like, I'm going to need this, I'm going to need that, I'm going to need this, I'm going to need that, I'm going to need all these different pieces of armor, right? And so here's what he says in verse 13, right? He says, therefore, in light of how massive this, this battle is really going to be, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. That's your job. Okay, so I want, I want you to, to understand this here for a second. I want you to understand this, guys. It's not your job to defeat Satan. It's not your job to be victorious. It's your job to stand firm. It's your job to stand firm. And so here's what I'm going to do. Uh, Paul basically then describes, and just to help us save some time, Paul describes this spiritual armor that we are called to take up and put on, right? It's just that middle voice, so I need to put it on my body. Uh, and the first thing that he describes uh, is this, this belt. Now, oftentimes when we think of a belt, we think of something we put around our waist, right? Just simple like this. Maybe it's something I sheathe my sword in. But in, in Roman times, this would have been more like a leather apron that would have like gone underneath his armor that would have protected against like rashing, um, but also just kind of protects the thighs in as minimal way as possible, right? So there's this leather apron. And what Paul says is that this is actually what he calls it. He defines it as the belt of truth, which means that, that your job when you're fighting against Satan, the number one thing you need to put on is truth. Because Satan is going to use lies. That's his primary weapon against you is lies. You need to be able to understand. You need to see the difference between right and wrong. The best lie is 99.9% true, right? He says you need truth, right? The next thing is he talks about this breastplate, right, this chest plate. Uh, in the Old Testament, it would have looked like chain mail, but in New Testament, it would have been this, this single plate that covers the chest, right, from frontal attack. So as you're engaging your enemy, you're protecting your, your vital organs here, right? And it's called the breastplate of righteousness because it's imbued with God's righteousness because this is God's armor, right? And so what he's saying is that when you put on this breastplate, what it's actually doing is that's actually compelling you to live righteously, to live in the right, to live in good. And here's, here's what he says, feels counterintuitive for us as people. But what he's saying is that when you act and live righteously, it becomes a guard against Satan. Because when you act unrighteously, you open up space and gaps for Satan to spear you and to deceive you and to bring lies. And so how you act matters, right? Right? So it's not just that. Then he says there's also these shoes, right? There would have been these sandals that are about three-quarters inch thick. They would have been tied up the legs just like this. But these aren't just normal sandals, people. These aren't sandals for running. These are sandals for defending. Because he, the word that he uses actually means, like in Roman infantry, it's this word for a sandal that has these little tiny hollow-headed nails that are protruding from the bottom, almost like track spikes, 
And so what they do is that they allow you to stamp your feet in the ground and to stand firm against the onslaught so that way in battle you don't slip and fall. And what he says is that these are prepared with the readiness, the preparedness of the gospel of peace. And if you remember the story, right, peace is all about how God has remade or he's, he's rebringing the world into rights. He's making the world right that starts with Jesus. And so for us, we have peace between us and God. We are in right relationship with him, but we also have peace with each other. And so when Satan comes to attack, he says, you need these on because Satan is going to try to bring attack against the peace that you have between God, between you and God and you and others. He's going to attack your identity. Your identity, you're not really a Christian. You're not good enough. Like, gosh, like, like there's so much sin in your life. Do you really think that God loves you? Like you don't, you've never, you haven't witnessed to somebody in like 10 years. You're no good. He's going to attack that. And he's going to attack our, our relationship with other people. And be like, man, like, you're like, what kind of a friend are you? What kind of a husband are you? What kind of a spouse are you, right? Like, you're terrible at this. He's going to attack those types of things. And he says, above that, though, beyond that, in all circumstances, this is the heaviest piece of the armor. He says, I want you to take up the shield of faith, which looks like a door. It's about two and a half feet by four feet, and it looks like a door, right? And it covers almost every single part of your body, which makes it probably heavy. But he describes it as a shield of faith, and it really begs the question, at the end of every day, who do I trust? When Satan attacks, who do I trust? Am I trusting God or am I trusting Satan? You go back to the garden, Adam and Eve, what do they do? Like Satan comes in and he offers them something. By the way, that's an attack. He offers them something and they have to wrestle with who do I trust? Do I trust, trust God? Do I trust Satan? Ultimately choose wrong. At the end of every day, gosh, this is such an important one for us. Who do we trust? So simple, Right? And and by the way, he says, when you use this, it actually extinguishes the flaming darts of the evil one, right? Because they would shoot these bows and arrows and they'd light them on fire and it'd be terrifying watching arrows come at you, right? So what they would do is they would take the shield, wrap it in leather, dunk it in water. And so that way when they carried it, as these arrows lodge into the shield, it immediately extinguishes the fire. This is a pretty cool picture of war. You're like, gosh, like if I'm in battle, I need a shield, right? It's important right? And then he says, also, you got this helmet, this helmet of salvation, which just says, reminder, hey, at the end of every day, what you need to remember is that the battle is already done. The battle's already done. You are victorious. You have permanent salvation with Jesus, and remember that. Don't ever let Satan deceive you or make you think otherwise. And the last thing he says is this. He says, you have the sword, which is this Short, kind of broad sword like this, since one hand is holding the shield, one hand is, is holding the sword. The sword is the only offensive tool that he gives you. It's the only offensive piece that he gives you. And he says it's the word of God. And oftentimes when we think about the word of God, we think about, uh, in Greek, the word logos, but here he uses the word hrema. And hrema can be used interchangeably with the other word, but it probably means this, is that it means the spoken word of God. So that when you have been meditating or reading or memorizing scripture and Satan attacks you, there's something more powerful about when you quote scripture out of your mouth. It's like this jab and this stab at Satan that causes him to back away. It can't do it. 
There's something powerful about it. By the way, that's what Jesus did. When he's tempted by Satan in the wilderness, what does Jesus do? Quote scripture. Verbal, verbal, verbal. He quotes scripture back and forth with him and he finally leaves him alone. Here's what I love about this. Guys, this armor, when you look at this armor, we are tempted to think that this is just random armor out of a box. Like they'd be like, okay, but you're walking through a line and like, cool, you're heading into battle. Here's your helmet. Here's your breastplate. Here are your shoes, right? Uh, the reality is, is that every single piece of these, of these articles of clothing can be linked to Isaiah and to this key character in the Old Testament named the Messiah, whose job was to vindicate his people, defeat the enemies, and bring freedom. This is Jesus' armor that he's describing. And so when you look at this, you go, this isn't just random armor. This is the armor of Jesus that I get to put on. And it is super powerful, right? But if we as humans, guys, it's so easy for us. We get tired of holding the shield. It's heavy. We want to put it down. We go to bed. We want to take off the helmet. We do all these things, right? And there's something, there's something challenging about thinking about how do we wear this at all times. I don't know that that's feasibly possible, but my challenge is to wear it as much as possible because you are weak without it and Satan will attack you with schemes that you don't fully understand. But your job is not to defeat him. Your job is simply to stand firm, to plant your feet in the ground with your armor and your shield and your sword and to be ready on that day of attack whenever he chooses to attack. As I was thinking about our story in this and as I think about spiritual warfare in my own life, as we were applying for this, for this job and uh, we, you know, we came up and we visited and we sat out in the, the parking lot and my wife looked at me and she doesn't say this very often, uh, but she looked at me and she said, Seth, if we come here, we will face spiritual warfare a lot. And I was like, I think you're right, right? On the day that we were supposed to candidate, uh, it was, the, was the, the, the weekend that the nation shut down. When the day that we drove in to Fargo-Moorhead to move here, there were tornadoes swirling all over the place. I'm sick this week. Satan does not want us to make the gospel the main thing. He does not want workplaces, marriages, uh, and our communities to be dictated by the gospel. That's not what he wants. And guys, here's the deal, is that when the gospel impacts your life and begins to transform your life in powerful ways, you are gonna attract some pretty powerful enemies. Not least of which is Satan and all of his forces, and because he's radically opposed to the gospel and the kingdom that Jesus wants to build means he's radically opposed to you. You are a huge piece in God's plan. Don't let Satan convince you otherwise. You are a huge piece in Satan's plan. This is how he ends. Ends with prayers. He always does. He says, verse 18, he says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. He's like, man, whatever's going on in your life, whatever Satan's attacking you, whatever you're feeling, whatever doubts, whatever desires, whatever lusts, whatever, whatever it is that's going on in your life, would you bring it in, in prayer before the Lord? And then he says, but, but, but to that end, right, don't just pray for yourself. He says, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So don't just pray for you, pray for your brothers and pray for your sisters. In verse 19, and he says, and also for me, 
that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. I love how Paul's prayers at the end is pray for, pray for you, pray for your brothers and sisters, and pray for me. And by the way, don't pray for me that I get out of prison. Pray for me that I preach the gospel. That's pretty powerful stuff as you think about Paul. I want to invite the worship team uh, to come forward. Uh, In a moment, we're just going to take communion and finish with a song. And oftentimes when we do communion, we, we encourage you guys to really think through your walk with Jesus and think, man, where, where there might be some correction in my life. And that's not the, 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 the stance I want to take this morning. This morning I just want to encourage you is to say this. I want you to celebrate. When you take communion this morning, would you celebrate that God has given you a powerful purpose and mission in your workplace? Right? And you're a key part of God's plan in building the kingdom. You are a pastor to certain people, which is incredible. Celebrate that. But then also celebrate the fact that the victory is already done and the battle's already over. And because we're gonna take, you know, we're gonna take place and take part in this battle of which many of us have never seen battle, but we know that the battle is actually already done. And that's incredible. So let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you uh, for this morning. Lord, we are just encouraged. I hope that we are encouraged this morning as we think about Jesus, that you would just point our mind and our hearts to the cross and that you would be seeing in our mind's eye this picture of Jesus and his his crown of thorns and his arms spread wide and, and his feet down and the nails in his hands and the nail in his feet. And it's in this act, Lord, that he went to battle and he fought the forces of evil on our behalf and he comes out on the other side victorious in his resurrection, and we have full forgiveness of sins. And so, Lord, this morning, I pray that we would look at that, we would celebrate, and that we would respond by thinking about the amazing privilege it is to be a power force for the gospel in our workplace. Lord, we love you. I hear me pray. Amen. We're gonna just...